0: All right. Well, this uh, ties in a lot with uh, what Jonathan brought us last week in an excellent um, lesson on the work of the Holy Spirit. This particular chapter that Jeff asked me to do, though, starts with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and touches on that. And that's a topic of a lot of discussion. Sometimes I know we've discussed that in our Sunday school class. You know, what was the Holy Spirit's role there? Is the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament? How is it different from how he's present with us in the New Testament? And uh, there on the first page uh, of the handout uh, that you received, it, it's just a quote from the chapter. It's often difficult to identify the Holy Spirit within the Old Testament for it reflects the earliest stages of progressive revelation. And uh, and I think that's true, but I wanted to talk about that um to be sure, we're we're familiar with what that means. What's meant by the term progressive revelation? It's going to deal gradually over time. hmm Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Does progressive revelation mean that if we start at the Old Testament and move through the whole Bible all the way through Revelation, that God changes no. over the course of the Bible? Okay. No, it doesn't. And I, I gave a, a couple of quotes there. Uh, Malachi three six: For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's from a passage we actually covered in the lesson last week in Sunday school. Um, and it talks about the fact that because God's constant, because He's unchanging, and because uh, Israel was in His hesed, His covenant love, where He chooses to be for them, even though they had messed up, he wasn't going to revoke that choice. They weren't going to uh be destroyed because he doesn't change. Uh and also um, uh the the next quote there uh from Hebrews thirteen eight it confirms that the same thing's true of Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if it doesn't mean that God changes, what does progressive revelation mean then? okay yeah um, that's exactly right. It means that uh, even though God hasn 't changed, apparently from what the Bible tells us, our ability to comprehend god uh, is is what's in question there, and God has revealed himself uh in the way that was right at the time and and that that last um, Scripture that's quoted there under the question, what is progressive revelation, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a question that's sometimes asked. Why didn't Jesus come right after Adam sinned? And you know, sin was in the world then, and why didn't he? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Why would Jesus coming be delayed after sin came into the world? We wouldn't have enough time to mess up that many more times. Before came. <laughs> okay, yeah. Paul tells us about the Old Testament and about the law, that the law was given, he said as a schoolmaster for you. And he Paul's idea about the law is it was given so that, sort of like a doctor's test. When you go to the doctor and you have a test and find out you have a disease, you have cancer or whatever, The law, that's kind of the way Paul viewed the law. He said, I didn't know what sin was until the law, right? I didn't know what coveting was until I read the law about coveting. And then I realized how covetous I really was. So, Paul's view was uh not that people would ever be able to live perfectly by the law, but that it made them very aware of the sin problem they had. Why is that important? Why is that an important first step before coming to Jesus? You didn't know you were sinning. You didn't know you needed repentance. Okay, yeah, exactly right. Uh in order to uh, deal with our sin problem, we got to know we have it, right? And there is no repentance until you own it, until you know this is my sin. It's not somebody else's. It's not something society forced me into. The devil didn't make me do it, okay? The devil can tempt you, but he can't make you do it. It's my sin. And so in the same way, we have to come to that in our individual lives. That's the way God's revelation was, right? First is the law. And what it's intended to do, and Paul says what it always did, really, is that people realized, I'm not righteous. I need God's mercy. And uh, and so then uh, Christ was able to come. So the, the, um, the question then is, does the Holy Spirit show up in the Old Testament? The term is not used there much. The term Holy Spirit is rarely used in the Old Testament. Uh, the usual expression you see there is the term Spirit of God. Now, so the question is, how can we know that that Spirit of God is equivalent with the old with uh, the Holy Spirit, if it is? And uh, one way we can know is that there are a couple of places where the New Testament affirms that force, where it looks back on a passage from the Old Testament and says, this is the Holy Spirit. And I've got one of those listed there in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 16. It says, but... This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so the book of Joel from the Old Testament is is being read here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon shall be turned to blood before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is happening here in Acts is Peter is, is, uh, preaching his sermon and he's saying, he's quoting this passage from Joel and he's saying, you're seeing the fulfillment of that here on Pentecost, right? You're seeing the pouring out of God's Spirit. And um, if you turn back one chapter to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but this is what Jesus told His disciples, um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, So there we have the New Testament confirming this passage from Joel is talking about the Holy Spirit. And so we know it's there. Uh, And looking at the major areas that the Holy Spirit's working is seen in the Old Testament, um, the first one we see is in is at the very beginning, at the beginning of creation. Uh, Genesis chapter one verse two. A verse we're probably all really familiar with. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see God's Holy Spirit active right at the beginning in the act of creation. And then um, the Old Testament also tells us that the the Holy Spirit was active in giving the prophecy and giving the Scripture. And um this is something that the Old Testament prophets confirm um a lot of times, and probably one of the clearest examples. I try to just pick a, a really clear one there from Ezekiel chapter two, verse two. Uh Ezekiel says this, and he, the Lord, spoke to me. Uh and as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So Ezekiel literally says, God's a spirit. God's Holy Spirit entered me, set me on my feet so I could hear what the Lord was saying to me. And I listed some other verses there where you can see that um, that same thing being said. And then, again, another confirmation from the New Testament. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter writes to the Christian church, he says, "...for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man." But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's confirming it's the Holy Spirit who was active with all those writers of the Old Testament, with all those prophets uh, in giving them um, what they were to say and in giving them the scriptures they were to write. Then we also see the Holy Spirit's work in uh, the conveying of certain necessary skills to do different things. And a lot of times, that's how you see the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament. And it's almost like, uh, you know, we have, in, in, as Christians now, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but what you see a lot of times in the, in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit coming on somebody for a purpose. And it's almost like, the imagery is almost like the Holy Spirit comes on them and it's like a cloak that they put on. And they have the, the power to do whatever it is God's called them to do. And uh, just a couple of examples of that from Exodus chapter 31. Uh, this is talking about when God's given them the instructions for building um, the tabernacle uh, for for their worship. And, and how they're to do it. And it says there, um, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Here's the handout. <laughs> uh, so there it's talking about, you know, God's spirit coming to this man so he would know how to do, how to do the things necessary to, uh, uh, to do the work of building the temple. And another place we see that is in Joseph's life. You know, Joseph, uh, um, the, the guy who was sold into slavery by his brothers, but it was all, you know, really God's hand guiding it. And we see said of him in, in Genesis chapter 41, it says, uh, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So there's recognition even from um, somebody who's not necessarily a follower or believer uh, that that God's Spirit is present in this man's life. And of course we know Joseph was given by the Spirit. He was given the ability to do. What kind of things did Joseph do? Do you remember from the story of him? Yeah, right. There was, there were, um, uh, dreams, right? He became famous for that. That even got him out of prison, right? Because he was able to interpret dreams. And then just a couple of other examples, um, from the Old Testament there in Judges chapter six, verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and again that's that image I was talking about. It's like the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and it's like his cloak, like his armor that enables him to do something. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. So, you know, Gideon, a man who's called for a purpose for defending his country, and um and the spirit of the Lord's what enables him. That's what we see a lot, by the way, in Judges. Um, the Spirit of God coming on these judges to enable them to do military acts that are necessary to, to save Israel, to deliver them. Uh, and then in First Samuel chapter sixteen, uh it talks about David's anointing as king, and this is something that we we see with the with the early kings of Israel, the Spirit of, of God uh, coming on them. And in 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 16, it talks about that in David's anointing as king. It says in verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the Spirit of the Lord coming on David. Uh, and it's interesting to note, does this Spirit of the Lord always stay with people in the Old Testament that we see? Like it? Like it does in the New Testament, not in the Lex Verse. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, uh, and you know, a classic example of of somebody it didn't stay on, right? Is the king that <clears throat> preceded David. Um, he Saul he betrayed um, the Lord's command to him, and not only did he lose the presence of God's Spirit, there's a uh, it's sort of it's a very pathetic verse of Scripture. It talks about. Him seeking God's will and not getting any answer. And the image there is kind of a, one of the ways that they communicated with God was the, the high priest carried these little lots called the Urim and Thummim. And we don't really know exactly what they were, but they would pray and they would cast the lots. And there were really three possible answers, yes, no, or no answer, depending on how the lots fell. And um, and so apparently what was happening was he was at he was inquiring of the Lord, and every time the lots are cast, it's coming back, no answer. So God's refusing to answer him, refusing to hear him. So he lost uh that presence, that spirit of God. Uh but the Holy Spirit's also seen present in just in general in, in um Israel's spiritual life. And uh that passage from Nehemiah talks about um, how God provided for Israel in the wilderness. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse twenty, it talks about the provision of the manna and so forth. But but listen to the to the way it words it. It says, uh, "Let's see, uh, you gave your good spirit to instruct them." That's what it says. So God's spirit is given there to. To teach the people the way they ought to go, to instruct them and in what they ought to do, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst, and so on, uh, talking about God's provision for them. Uh, and then, uh, in a very uh, direct reference from Psalm 51, and uh, you know, if you ever, I think Psalm 51 is probably one we all latch onto at some point when you know when you've sinned and you know you've sinned. And you're seeking God's forgiveness because this is David's cry for forgiveness um, when he has sinned. You know, with Bathsheba, he's he's committed adultery with her. He's killed her husband Uriah to cover cover up uh, what he's done and and to have her for himself. And and he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and 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 he realizes he's the one. And you know, it's a, that wonderful story. You remember uh, Nathan goes into him and tells him. The story, he says, you know, there's a man who had a little, little ewe lamb. It was his only lamb. He, it was like a daughter to him. It slept with him and a, a rich man who had all kinds of sheep and a visitor comes to the rich man and, um, instead of getting one of his sheep, he goes and takes this poor man's little pet lamb, kills it and serves it to the guest. And, um, and David's enraged and, and he says, you know, surely as the Lord lives, that man should die. And you can almost see Nathan turn around and and point a an old bony finger. I don't know if he had a bony finger, but I imagine he did. And said, "You are the man." And David's instantly convicted uh, of what he's done. And and uh, shortly thereafter, he writes this uh, this beautiful psalm. But one of the things he says there in Psalm fifty-one, verse eleven, is, uh, "Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me." So here's one of the times where we actually see. Uh, the use of the term Holy Spirit used. David, somebody, right? We read the passage about his anointing. He's experienced what God's spirits like, and he doesn't want to lose that, and so he's asking for forgiveness. Um, and also, there there is within the Old Testament witness of the Holy Spirit and uh, anticipation of what was to come later, and uh, we see that in in a number of passages, and I've just got a couple of them here. But Isaiah chapter sixty one talks about what it will be like in the time when God's Spirit comes. It says uh, in chapter 61, right there at the beginning, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to all those who mourn in Jerusalem and to give them a beautiful uh, headdress instead of ashes and on and on it goes. Uh, can you remember a point where this is quoted in the New Testament? Yes, <laughs> it's a good guess. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's uh, where Jesus is, uh, is worshiping in the synagogue and you know, it was his, he made a habit of, of regular worship. And he goes in there and he's given uh the scroll to read, it tells us in and, and there in chapter Luke chapter four. Um it talks about it says, uh, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah uh was given to him. He unrolled the scroll to the uh, and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. That, those verses we just read. And then uh, there in, in verse 20 it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the all, eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, so we see there, you know, again, the, the New Testament confirming uh, what's going on in the Old Testament. Also another passage there uh, is that beautiful passage from Joel, uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Uh, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Uh, and so that, that image of the fuller coming uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, in a way, of course, that we know in Christ. And that brings us to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. And, uh, you know, that's something I, I don't know if we necessarily think of consciously a lot because Jesus he is part of the Trinity, right? Jesus he is identified with God, uh, yet we see clearly in His life a very pervasive and powerful presence of the Holy Spirit uh, and activity of the Holy Spirit throughout His life. And just a couple of things there... Beginning with, uh, his conception. You remember what the, what, how Jesus' conception took place? What was Mary told about how she would conceive a child? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, there in, in uh, Luke chapter 1 says and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Uh, so right there from Jesus' conception, the Holy Spirit is, is present and uh and uh creating that. And then the next time uh when we see Jesus begin his public ministry, what's one of the what's one of the first things he does? John the Baptist is preaching, right, a message of repentance. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, he goes to John for baptism. And there in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, we see John talking about Jesus. And he says, John says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh and so we see that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh there in that reference in Matthew chapter three uh, verses sixteen and it's the parallels are the same account in the in the other gospels. We've got all four listed there, but just to, to look at the one from three sixteen, and when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water, and behold the heavens were open, and what happened? Yeah, the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit descends on him there. It says, like a dove, uh, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." Uh, so we see the the um, the presence of um, of the Holy Spirit right there at the beginning of Jesus' baptism. And uh, then, if we look over it in the account in Luke chapter four. It says there in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So, right after his baptism, the Spirit descends on him and he's full of the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to have what happen. Yeah, exactly right. And I think it's interesting the way that Mark in particular words this about Jesus' temptation. Because Mark says... and Chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So it's like the Holy Spirit, it's not just, you know, in Mark's presentation, it's not just something subtle. The Spirit drove him there. He was sent out there by compulsion uh, into the wilderness to be tempted. Um, and I guess it's, it's worth noting that the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life brings direct Immediate conflict with evil, doesn't it? Uh, and you think there's a message in there for us? I mean, if we have the if we have the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, uh, we can expect conflict with evil, right? Jesus told his disciples, um, he said, you know, the world if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And you may as well expect that. And so uh, that's one of the, the signs, I guess, of the Holy Spirit's working in us, is that we do come into conflict with evil. Uh, you know, it's not, you hear a lot of, um, you can hear preaching on TV or wherever that tells you how God wants to um, meet your needs and make you wealthy and all this stuff. Um, and, but a lot of times the the preachers who talk about that, so much, don't say anything about how the fact that God calls you to obedience and uh, if you have his spirit, there's going to be conflict with evil. Uh, but that's that's the truth of the gospel and that's the message that, that Jesus gave his followers. Um, but we see the Holy Spirit present too or uh, active in Jesus' teaching there in Luke chapter 4. Uh verses fourteen and fifteen. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit's presence in Jesus' teaching and the activity he's doing, not just his teaching, but we see in his working of miracles. Uh, and there that reference from Matthew chapter uh, chapter twelve. This is where Jesus is casting out demons and uh, and the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders have something to say to them about it. There in chapter 12, uh, it says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So the people are getting the idea, right? They're they're starting to make the connection with the Messiah, um, and you know, Jesus, when Jesus was questioned, you remember by John the Baptist, are you the one? He said, What have you seen? What are the works? Right? What's the evidence of the works you've seen? So the people are starting to get this, the people are realizing that. But they're in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Then verse 25, knowing their thoughts uh Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So he's pointing out the obvious logical flaw in what they're saying. If you're saying Satan is casting out Satan, then he's fighting against himself, right? And he's doomed to lose. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But he says in verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, so we see that the Holy Spirit there present as Jesus is, uh, is casting out demons and performing his miracles and really present throughout, uh, the entirety of his life. There are just, and I just put one passage down there, but there are all kinds, uh, we could look at, but Luke 10, 21, uh, it just says, In the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And we see that phrase a lot associated with Jesus. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's there in every aspect uh, of Jesus' life and in all that he's doing. And um, do you think that's a message for us about how we, have to live the Christian life if we're going to live it. You know, if the Son of God had the Holy Spirit present for everything He did from the beginning, from His conception, when He began His public ministry, sending Him out into conflict with evil, there in His teaching, there in His, um, in his working of miracles, uh, how are we going to be of use to God without the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is there any way we can? Uh, And, and, you know, that's... Jesus is our example in that. And that brings us to the the next section in your handout there, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Uh, And it's it's present there from the beginning of the Christian's life, um, starting with our conversion. You know, our, our conversion is when we turn to God, right? That's when we turn from sin... To God, and it has both a negative and a positive element. the negative element is repentance. who does the convicting of sin? do we hear the gospel and realize on our own i 'm a bad person. is that how it happens the yeah, exactly right. yeah Paul tells us in Romans that there's nobody who seeks God on their own right that's not our nature there's that picture picture in Romans I think chapter three. Of the natural person, you know, the, the person apart from the influence of God. Nobody seeks after God. Every one of our thoughts inclines to evil continually. Isn't that true, by the way? You get in a situation where, um, you know, I don't know, somebody uh, cuts you off in traffic. What's the first inclination of your heart? <laughs> Is it, bless you, you know? <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> the first inclination of the heart always goes towards sin, doesn't it? And towards selfishness, isn't that true? Where there's a situation where you have a chance to advance in some way, uh, isn't that our first thought? You know, hey, this can make money for me or whatever. Our hearts do incline that way naturally, don't they? They incline to sin and self. So we're not capable of that conviction by ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, and uh, we run from it. Uh, but thank God, we can't. We're not as fast. As the Holy Spirit, He runs us down and brings that conviction on us. Uh, and then the the positive side, the, the repentance is sort of the, the the negative side of that, turning from something, turning from sin. The positive side is, uh, is faith, and uh, that we turn to uh, acceptance of the promises that Christ has given us and His work in our hearts. And I've got a, a passage listed there in John chapter 16 that I'll just uh, go through. Real quickly for you there in verses 8 through 11. Um, and when he comes, this is Jesus talking about the, the Holy Spirit and what he'll do. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus is talking about the necessary role of the Spirit there, bringing, like we talked about, bringing that conviction that, that leads to repentance, uh, convicting us of righteousness and of you know our inability to have it on our own. That, that we have to have God's presence and convincing, uh, convicting us of judgment and, and the judgment that we that we face apart from Christ. So uh, that that role of, of Christ is uh, of the Holy Spirit is is ever present and necessary. Uh, at the beginning of the christian's life, and then, of course, in the act of regeneration, now what does regeneration mean? What does it mean to be regenerated as Christians? Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. something again, can we do it? Are we able to do it and that's exact- and the, the phrase you use is exactly the, the scripture I was going to there in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus, you know, and, and, uh, and, um, you know, he's saying, Teacher, we know that you're from God because nobody could do these signs if it weren't from God. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly is, you know, the, the, the flashing red light in, in Jesus' words, right? That says, Pay attention, something important is coming. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is amazed. How can, you know, a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into the womb. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we have our physical birth, but the spiritual birth via the Holy Spirit is required uh, for our regeneration. It's something we can't accomplish. We need a new heart, right? And only God can accomplish that, and, and the Holy Spirit is is uh, is the agent through which that's accomplished. And it's kind of an amazing thing, you know. The the, the spirits work in us; we can't necessarily explain it. It's sort of like in that passage, uh, Jesus goes on to say, compare the you know the work of the Spirit to the wind. He says, you know, you the wind blows, and you can't see where you know you can't see it. Uh, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see its effect. You know, you see the trees moving and you see its effect. And it's like that, he says, with the Spirit and um, the power of, of God's Spirit at work in us. And then uh, the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't end there, does it, with our conversion. It's there throughout the continuation of uh, of our lives as Christians. Uh, one of the things the Holy Spirit does, and, and here we're kind of really reviewing a lot of the stuff Jonathan talked about, but... One of the things the Holy Spirit does is empower us, and that reference there in in John chapter fourteen there's so many beautiful promises if you if you um, it's so useful to remember what the Lord said that the, that the Spirit would do for us and and a lot of those are, are listed right here, but that first one, John chapter fourteen, verse twelve truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Um, How do you think the disciples would have reacted having been around Jesus, having seen him do the things he did, you know, change water to wine, heal paralytics, cast out demons, raise Lazarus from the dead? How do you think they would have reacted when he said, um, you'll do the things that I do and greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father? Yeah. Isn't that kind of your reaction? that's my reaction when I read that? Greater works than you, and you know. How is that possible then? He says, Because I'm going to the Father, but what does that mean? Jesus is in bodily form, he can only be one man and we are one. Okay, exactly right. In bodily form he could travel he never traveled far from home, right? Within maybe thirty miles of his home is the furthest he travelled. Um, and he talked to crowds, and people followed him, and people rejected him. Uh, but he was there physically, and they could hear him if they were close enough to hear him. Right? When he and he says, "Greater things will you do because I go to the Father." Well, what happens after he goes to the Father? It's that promise we read from Acts chapter one. Right? I'll send the Spirit. So when the Spirit comes, all of a sudden we don't have to. Um, go find Jesus where he's talking today and try to get close enough to hear him, he's there indwelling us. His Holy Spirit's indwelling us and teaching us and reminding us of what he's taught us. And so, uh you know, greater works because now he's not limited to, in his physical body to, you know, the, the hundreds of people he can talk to, now in his Holy Spirit to, you know, billions in, in a world, Right? Um and so that's a pretty amazing thing and we see the first evidence of that at Pentecost, don't we? Uh the Holy Spirit comes on Peter, he preaches and how many people respond? Do you remember what it says? Three thousand. Yeah, 3,000. That's probably that's almost certainly way more response than Jesus ever got, right? When he was when he was going around preaching. That's the power of of the Spirit uh, in action. And there that passage in Acts uh is I think that that very promise, Acts chapter one, um, verses four and five. And while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit not so many days from now. So that, that promise of the, of the Spirit who would empower them, and we immediately see what that empowering is like at the events of Pentecost. And not only does the Spirit empower us, but He indwells us. And back in John uh, chapter 14, it says, uh, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The promise that the Holy Spirit will be in us and, and won't leave us, won't desert us. And over just a couple of chapters there in chapter 16, uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, um, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit declaring what's from God, what's from Christ to us, right? Uh, And then uh, the Holy Spirit's role in teaching. In chapter 14, verse 6, um, Jesus uh, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. For now, you do know him and have seen him. I think I wrote the wrong reference down there. But anyway, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Holy Spirit's role in teaching us about what the, uh, what the Father has, has taught us. Uh, let's see if I can spot that real quick. But my, but the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, here it is. It's verse 26 instead of 6. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit reminding us of what Jesus has taught us. You ever experience that you're in a situation and something you've studied in Scripture comes to mind. Um, and a lot of times it's it's that uh, you know you're you're in a situation where you're getting you've been offended, right? And you're getting mad. And the Spirit reminds you about uh, all those passages about forgiveness and how much you've been forgiven. Uh, that happens a lot. At least it does for me. Happens a lot to, to get reminded of uh, of the uh, of the fact that that we have been forgiven an awful lot. And then it's it's not only that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in Romans chapter eight. It talks about that um, in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that an amazing promise? You know, we don't know what to pray. You ever feel like that? Um, you're in a situation, and you're just—it's too much. Perhaps it weighs too much, and you just don't even know what to say. You don't know what to pray. And uh, isn't that an amazing promise to remember that the Spirit intercedes for yes. us with groanings too deep for words? Uh, and then the Holy Spirit's involved in our sanctification. Uh, and I don't know if I'll, we're running out of time here. Uh, but there in, in chapter eight, uh, the first 17 verses, it, it, it is, covers that subject. Uh, what does our sanctification mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're washed, we're forgiven. Sanctification is a process. What happens in the process of sanctification? Yeah. When we're saved, Christ's righteousness is credited to our account as the image scripture gives us. So we're instantly, God views us with the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we have standing before Him and we're able to come to Him, uh, and sanctification is the process of actually transforming us, transforming our character, transforming our hearts into the likeness of Christ. So we receive the legal status when we're saved. We're viewed as righteous. And then the Holy Spirit's at work changing us to be like Christ. And we're rapidly running out of time, so I don't think I'm going to read through that whole passage, but I encourage you to read that, that first part of, of, of chapter 8 there. And then uh, the Holy Spirit gives uh, gives all kinds of gifts. Uh, and I'll just look at a couple of these in, cha- in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. There are different lists of gifts um, that are given in Scriptures. And, the, and those four are kind of the, the main lists of gifts. Um, but there in, in verses 6 through 8 it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, so talking about the different things that the Spirit gives, there's an, another list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 there. By the way, chapter 13, uh, as Jonathan mentioned last week, that was—I thought—that was, I thought that was a, a revealing insight. That you know, Chapter 13, the one that gets read all the time uh, at weddings and things, um, about love and uh, faith, hope, and love, is dependent on Chapter 12. Uh, that is—that's talking about uh, talking about the the work of the Holy Spirit, starting there in verse four. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And uh, since we're running out of time, I'm not going to get to to quite get as far as I wanted to on this, but does everybody have all the same gifts? No. No. Um, One of the things I wanted to touch on a little was one of the gifts that sometimes is focused on as being, uh, something everybody should have, uh, is, uh, speaking in tongues. You know, there, there are, are denominations that say if you don't do that, um, you know, you're not truly saved and that kind of thing. The, the message of scripture though about the gifts is that, uh, they're not something we necessarily say, I want this one and we, we, um, we strive for that. It's rather that the Spirit is the one who dispenses them according to His, according to God's wisdom and gives them to us for what purpose? Are they given to us to, to make us look good? Yeah, exactly. They're given for the service of the body of Christ. So the Spirit dispenses them according to the perfect wisdom of God and gives them as is needed in the body of Christ. And that's the real purpose of the gifts. I think too often we we get in debates about things like that, about speaking in tongues and so forth, which is a legitimate gift of the Spirit, right? Speaking in tongues is mentioned in Scripture. There's a miracle of the tongues when at Pentecost, where the you know they're everybody's hearing what's being said in in their own language and even their own dialect from where they are in in their language. Um, But that's one of the gifts, and Scripture tells us that the Spirit gives them all. He doesn't give all of them to everybody. He gives them according to God's perfect wisdom. And and so uh, I think that's an important thing to remember. And then a, just that closing quote there was from, the, from this chapter. It said, what we are commanded to do, Ephesians 5.18, is be filled with the Holy Spirit. And parenthetically, the author says, the form of the Greek imperative suggests ongoing action. So that being filled with the Spirit is, you're constantly being filled with the Spirit. This is not so much a matter of our getting more of the Holy Spirit Presumably, all of us possess the Spirit in His entirety. It is rather a matter of His possessing more of our lives. Um, so, our yielding to the Holy Spirit and and uh, and yielding to the work He wants to do in our lives and the empowerment He brings to our lives uh, is is the point of that. And we will go ahead and and uh, wrap it up there and um, head on down to Hardy's, I guess. But let's. Um, Let's just close real quickly uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your indwelling self with us, your your Holy Spirit with us. And, Father, we pray you will will help us to understand and to trust your Holy Spirit, Father, and to be useful, empowered by your Spirit with the gifts he gives us to be true vessels for your gospel. We're just grateful for all your goodness and mercy, and we ask your help, Father, to have those transformed hearts that love you and that see people through the eyes Jesus saw them, and that see the the need of Christ and that are are more moved by that than our our fears of of being laughed at or rejected, and uh, we just pray we can be true vessels for your love, Father, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.